it's such a shame that it's so hard to find good, honest, legal help these days. How in a dream, cowboys. Welcome back to the HBO Boys podcast. We're talking about Perry Mason, Chapter 3. That That's the title. Directed again, Tim Van Patten, and written by Roland Jones and Ron Fitzgerald. All the same people who directed and wrote the first two chapters. So if it's good, it's their fault. And if it's bad, it's their fault. Or in episode four, when there'll be a different director and different writers, if it suddenly the quality drops off, we'll know what happened. Right, we know who to publicly flame. So one thing, I already I tweeted about this, but I want to bring it up. For the past two weeks, it has said Perry Mason miniseries on HBO Now, and it just says episode one, or rather chapter one, chapter two. But now, the word miniseries is gone, and it says episode, season one, episode one, season one, episode two. So what does that mean? If I had to guess, I would say enough people are watching the series, and also HBO is getting the idea from Damon Lindelof that he was actually serious when he said at the beginning that he was not going to make a second season of Watchmen. So perhaps they're looking to the future and seeing, hey, even if we do have a Game of Thrones spinoff, it's not going to be for a few years, and we need something to fill the time, and people are watching Perry Mason, so... I just hope this this is not more like cock and ball torture like we got with Watchmen, where they pretended they held out hope like there was going to be a season two, uh, and then and then dashed those hopes. I mean, why would they change it? Was it is it just like a a web design guy at HBO who's just like maybe I can will my wants and needs into the world with one stroke of a key? So I really liked Chapter Three. It was a pretty twisty and turny episode, though. It's the longest description I've written out of the of the first three episodes. I have started to use the dictate function in Microsoft Word, and it does little asterisks when I do my swearing that I do, which is, I know, uncouth, but how dare Microsoft Office censor me? Before we start the recap, we just want to remind everybody that we have a Patreon, and that for $1 a month, you get access to two bonus episodes a month, one of which will be coming down the pike later this week. Oh my god. Which one, dude? Uh, that's to be determined. Alright. Chapter 3 begins with Barnes and E.B. holding dueling press conferences. This is the district attorney and Emily's defense lawyer, and they're both getting a lot of attention from the L.A. press about the evidence in Emily's case. Barnes puts Emily and George's love letters up on display for all the reporters to take pictures of and then printed the newspaper so everyone can intrude upon their private love lives and have a good time doing that. And to make pretty sure that the jurors in this case will want to hang Emily from the very beginning, we're going back and forth between E.B. getting a shave with reporters around him and Maynard going onto the steps of a public building, one a private occasion and one a very public one, both with the reporters. But this scene I feel is really like Maynard is confident that he has enough to hang this lady and EB is losing his marbles, which I said last episode, and I believe 
your response was no ryan you're dumb i think that's exactly what you said well i just said he was losing his his edge but yeah well now it seems like maybe he's a little more senile in this episode perhaps alzheimer's or some sort of delusion that is just entering his brain either way i mean at one point literally perry mason's like are are you getting enough sleep and eb if he had a moment of clarity he'd just be like yeah yeah it's definitely something else in the next scene sister alice gives a sermon the topic of which is when she was poor and faithless but when she found god behind her the older male church elder whose name i don't think we've ever heard or i think we heard briefly in episode two he whispers to birdie you know i wonder if she's if if alice is gonna freak out again and birdie's like no we had a a stern talk about it, so don't worry. So it seems more like like Birdie and this guy, who were kind of opposed in the second episode, are now like coming together more as allies. Right. The independence of Sister Alice is forcing the elders and Birdie to further oppress her, and she will answer that with you know however she chooses to be, and that might not be like a normal way. She's not a normal person. As Alice recounts the story of a car crash that nearly killed her, but instead brought her a divine revelation from God, Perry is kind of poking through the hallway of the church, looking at their different memorabilia. After her sermon, Perry sits down with all of the elders, Bertie and Sister Alice, and Perry gets to ask them questions because George Gannon, a.k.a. Pinky, used to work at the church they say he passed his background check with flying colors. All of his references were great. Birdie and the elders obviously trying to distance themselves from George Gannon. While Sister Alice is just kind of doing her own thing the whole time. Sister Alice is getting a vitamin intravenous as this meeting is happening. Are we sure it's vitamins? It's yeah, a clear well, solution. Could I, be I, anything. Yeah. Uh, well, I should say, in I, you know, I live in Korea. And it's quite common here, what with the free socialized health care, that, you know, you'll always go to see a doctor, wow. whatever your condition is. You're just bragging at this point. Well, I, I, to stay relevant, I was trying to say one time when I was pretty run down from a cold, this is pre-corona, we're talking about a normal illness here. Uh, my wife recommended that I go to the doctor and get an intravenous vitamin B12, right? So quite like what Sister Alice is doing. And I hate needles, and I didn't want to do it anyway. I was like, I don't mm, know, this bet. sounds like, you know, holistic medicine. It's not going to work. I did it, and it did work, and I felt much better. Oh, I honestly was hoping it would... You, I was like, I did it. Lost an arm. Yeah, and I'm dead now. I'm a dead... I'm doing this podcast from the grave. Perry questions the church elders about George Gannon, who was apparently a church employee. Perry is acting very cynically and crudely. Sister Alice is unflappable and invites him to church counseling, which Perry flatly refuses, saying that God abandoned him in France. Yeah, we saw that scene last episode. We, we, I get it. I understand. At the county lockup, E.B. is prepping Matthew and Emily for the trial. E.B. sounds very hopeful. He's showing off this county-appointed matron whose job it is to protect Emily in jail, and he's also promoting this very dubious idea that they're sure to win because he's good buddies with the judge that's been appointed to the case. 
Matthew, I don't think, is listening to any of this. He is very angry at his wife, Emily, because, you know, the cheating. And he asks her very pointedly where said cheating occurred. He said that he didn't get to go to his son's funeral because he was sitting in jail, and she said nothing of George. Matt basically straight up blames Emily for the death of their son, at which point Emily gets a little angry and shouts at him to shut up a bunch of times. Yeah, he he says the line, You killed our Charlie boy! Which reminded me of, of when we recap Unforgiven, the line, You killed our Davy boy! Peter and Perry go to visit Virgil, the creepy mortician friend. Played by Jeffrey Mays of our hometown in Clinton, Connecticut. Yeah, Jeffrey, uh, if you or anyone who knows Jeffrey is listening to this, Why Ryan has several people looking around town for you. So... Uh, you know, just uh, walk around in public and see what happens. Nothing, something, something good will happen. <laughs> yeah, my little birds are everywhere. They're checking out the two dead bodies of the kidnappers, but George Gannon's body is not here because he died outside of this particular police jurisdiction. Virgil starts to say some crazy pervert shit about his necrophilic co-worker, but Perry cuts him off when he spies a boot shaped bruise on Black Hat's neck. Virgil offers the explanation that the killer was standing on his neck when he was shot. Perry asks where the personal effects for the kidnappers are, and Virgil says that they're not here, so the cops must have them. Pete Strickland and Perry Mason talk through who George was. Is he a guy that came off to you as a dude who would put his foot on a dude's throat after he shot him? and then go home and shoot himself with a shotgun. Things just aren't adding up. Perry gives Peter a list of George's known associates to go and interview. This is a very 1950s Perry move, which is just give your private investigator friend a ton of work and then be like, get to it. Right. Do everything that seems difficult while I walk around and smoke bogues. Peter's a little bit confused. He said that EB wanted them to look into the Dodson's associates, but Perry says, no, I'm, I'm shifting our priorities. I'm unilaterally making that decision. I mean, at this point, he doesn't even have the inkling that EB might be losing his Merbles. So Perry's just kind of operating under his own accord. He's a rebel without a cause. It seems like where they're going with this is that, like, Perry and Della are going to have to weekend at Bernie's EB through the trial. Right, like, a premonition of Perry's future lawyering's career is him being the de facto lawyer of this trial. Perry goes to the police precinct and asks for the personal effects of the two dead kidnappers, and the officer in charge says he doesn't have them either. This guy's a straight-up dickbag. Yeah, the guy at the morgue doesn't have them. He said the cops have it. The cops say no, the guy at the morgue has it, so nobody knows where they are. I bet I know where they are, James. I bet Red Scare... They're probably in a burning trash can somewhere, yeah. Yeah. Perry then asks to see the written report of the murders, and he finds it to be totally lacking in detail and poorly written. Yeah, it says it could have been written in crayon, which uh, I wonder what color, honestly. I, Perry it, asks, when I When I was a kid, no, I'm going to go on this crayon tangent. When I was a kid, they had the, you know, remember the ugly green, the green no one used where all the crayons were nubs, but there was one green who was like, no, that one, that, that one's never going to happen. Mm-hmm. It was written in that, the ugly green. You didn't like that tangent. I'm I'm just trying to think of a way to respond. (laughs) No, there is none. Move on. Perry asks to meet with Officer Drake, who filed the report, and the cop in charge basically just tells him to fuck off. 
So Perry goes over, or maybe under the officer's head, to the secretary and tries to, you know, plug her directly for information. He told her when he walked in that he liked her nails. So just always be nice to everybody, unlike the police bro who's a dickbag, and perhaps you'll get helped by them, and they'll want to help you. On the first day of the trial, the judge asks for the introduction of the two counselors, which E.B. promptly fucks up and starts reading his opening statement, which, like, this is not the day for that. God, his marbles are all over the ground. We get into a courtroom in Chapter 3, which felt odd. We, you and me, talked about how long we wanted this show to be within a courtroom as the 1950s show. Almost half of every episode was in a courtroom, and we thought perhaps the last two or three episodes would be full-on courtroom. To see a courtroom in Chapter 3, to meet the judge we were going to deal with here, it just felt like, felt early. Well, this is just the preliminary hearing. Which E.B. promptly forgets about. Right, he's like, oh, this is the opening day of the trial. (laughs) (laughs) I've poured it ahead in some sort of Bill and Ted time machine. When the judge asks Emily directly for her plea, she unexpectedly says guilty, which causes a total uproar in the courtroom. But the judge doesn't actually hear her clearly and asks her to say it again. And the second time she says not guilty. EB is like so befuddled. He's like, no, no, no. Uh, No. When you didn't do it, you should say not guilty. Yeah. Do you not remember? Just say it louder, please. Uh, The judge is played by an actor named Matt Frewer, whom is in the Watchmen movie in 2009. He plays Moloch the Mystic, a villain. He also plays Peter Morton in the show The Order, which I watched two episodes of. He plays the crazy grandpa. And it's, it's fine. It's not. It's bad. Anywho, he's there. He really wants Emily to say the right thing, as does E.B., Uh, But you know the world is going to be like, I mean, she said it. She just said she was guilty. D.A. Barnes recommends that bail be set at $25,000, which is an enormous sum in the 1930s. E.B. gives a very weak defense, and the judge agrees with the prosecution. E.B. looks totally befuddled and impotent and kind of calls out to the judge. He's like, Fred? Please help me, Fred. We used to be buds, remember? And he's he's gone. E.B., he's gone. Pick up all your marbles. Afterwards, Della rips into Perry for giving the letters to E.B. and then going along with Emily's arrest. Perry tries to defend himself, but Della isn't buying it and storms off in a rage. Yeah, Della's mad at Perry for doing anything with the letters to begin with. And she's yelling at Perry that no one cares anymore that Matthew lied as well because he has money and she's a quote-unquote slut. So Della, and this is not part of this conversation, but Della's the best character in this show for me by far. And the most likely original, as we talked about last week, she says if there's any reason for Emily to feel guilty, it's because every man around her is telling her that she is over and over again. And it feels like every time she makes a good point, Perry Mason does internalize it. And he's like, oh, yeah, that's a good point. I keep being biased against women. That is something I need to work on. Perry goes to visit Paul on his beat because Paul was the officer who wrote the report about the murder of the kidnappers. But Paul completely stonewalls him, refuses to say anything about the case. Meanwhile, across the street and a little couple yards away, Detective Ennis is watching them talk, which does not bode well. What a paranoid bro Detective Ennis must be. But this is when Perry Mason and Paul Drake, his future right-hand man, karate master Paul Drake, and him meet. 
with uh, so you know maybe one day at a dinner party they'll have to answer the question you know how did you guys meet like well we fought on the street this one time and then the second time we fought on the street a bunch at dinner peter tries to read some more human interest advice column newspaper stories to perry that's his thing he's like always reading those that's gonna have to like be a revelation moment eventually right like pete strickland's gonna be reading one of these stories and perry mason's gonna be like wait what did you just say like there has to be a reason they keep doing this peter drops the bomb that george gannon aside from being a church worker also was a money counter at a local casino called the lucky lagoon Peter wants to go with Perry to check out the casino. Perry says, no, it's cool. I'll go check out the casino. You go read some police reports by Paul Drake. And and Peter is devastated. He's like, what what the fuck, man? Yeah, Pete (laughs) really getting the shaft this episode. The next day, Paul and his wife go to a local outdoor market where they happen upon, not so coincidentally, Detective Ennis. He questions Paul about what he spoke to Perry about. Paul truthfully tells him that he said nothing at this point ennis very creepily approaches paul's wife and menacingly puts his hand on her pregnant stomach without asking yeah very bizarre just so creepy even if the music wasn't playing and wasn't ominous you would still feel like oh god this is gross he then pays for all of their groceries telling Paul, hey, the world can be a hard place if you haven't got friends, so it's a good thing you and I are such good friends, eh, Paul? This is a pretty overt threat. Across town, Sister Alice and her parishioners march down to the jail to volunteer for Emily and some of the other prisoners. Emily says that Alice is wasting her time on someone, you know, someone like me, who's so bad. But Alice insists that the two of them actually have a lot in common. Alice seems to suggest a lot that Her mom is very controlling in the same way that Emily has been controlled by the men in her life. And at which point, Emily kind of breaks down and and she says that she's indirectly to blame for Charlie's death because she became romantically involved with George. Alice reassures her that it was bad men who hurt Charlie and then very pointedly says, You're no more guilty than I am, which to me was an interesting line. That has to come back sometime. Emily just reiterating exactly what Matthew yelled at her. It's your fault. Speaking to what Della said, which is the reason she thinks she's guilty is because every dude around her says she is, specifically her husband, right to her face. So Sister Alice and Della are kind of on the same team, but I agree with you. I think the most interesting thing that will come out of this scene is Sister Alice's line there at the end. That has to mean something. As Sister Alice's prayer for Emily is narrated, what we see on screen is Lupe and Mason flying together in a two-man biplane. They're having a nice little date. I mean, that, that is, that's a pretty cool date. Like, hey, let's go on a biplane. Yeah, it came out of nowhere. I was like, am I watching the same show? And then I realized Lupe and Perry were going to the Lucky Lagoon, the desert casino, and it does make sense. But for one moment, I was like, I, did I just pour into watching The Mummy for a second? Perry apologizes to her for making such a scene on New Year's Eve and letting her see him that way. If you don't guys don't remember, he was just like blackout drunk trying to call his his wife at three in the morning. Like, put my young son on the phone at three in the morning. She's like, he's asleep. He's like, I don't care. I'm not asleep. The world should be awake. And they decide to make it up by going for dinner and dancing. 
So Perry takes her to the Lucky Lagoon. While there, he goes to the bar and orders them two Manhattans. And it occurred to me that I've never had a Manhattan. I don't think I've ever been out with someone who ordered a Manhattan. And I don't even know what goes into one. Have you ever had a Manhattan, Ryan? I feel like I've had a Manhattan. Sam. Sam. Mm -hmm. What's in a Manhattan? Okay, Sam doesn't know, so nobody knows. I, feel uh, like I just did some, one, some quick Google foo. A Manhattan is a cocktail made with whiskey, vermouth, and uh, something bitter. It just says bitters. Okay. Whiskey, vermouth, and bitters. Bitters is just like an actual thing. Oh. It shows what I know. Yeah. Anyway, Manhattan is a part of New York City and also a drink. But yes, that is what he gets while asking the bartender... So, okay, I'll get two Manhattans, and by the way, do you know how this George guy, this murderer, do you know about him? The bartender says he doesn't know much, but tells him that he can set up a meeting with the owner of the casino named Al, who might know some more. Lupe's like, are you working? And he's like, no, no, let's dance. And then in the middle of dancing, I have to leave because a man named Al wants to talk to me. But I'm, no, I'm not working. Shut up. Al's a pretty chill guy. According to him, George Gannon quit because he suddenly had a religious awakening and didn't want to work at a desert casino. Al says that he didn't really know the man, but he also didn't have any problems with him and that he was a decent accountant. Perry asks if he can go talk to the other staff about it, and Al says sure. Yeah, why would I have a problem with that? He also mentions that Gannon had a pair of cheap dentures, which everyone keeps bringing up, so probably important. Lupe wins big at the craps table. I like craps, actually. It's, it's the casino game with the highest odds in your favor. I have tried so many times to learn craps. I, it will never happen at this point. I know how to play poker, and blackjack seems easy enough, although I lose all the time. Well, craps is really easy. So you, when it's your turn, you throw the two dice, and whatever comes up, you want, you want, oh, you want, okay, well, you, want, you want to hit that number again. Oh, how many times? You don't, you don't want to hit 7 or 11. You just need to hit it once. And you oh, okay. And what happens if I hit 7 or 11? You lose. Oh, I don't like this game at all. But you can also, you know, place many little side bets. Like, you're throwing, let's say you're throwing for a 6, right? So I can bet that you'll succeed, and that's like the, the, the standard bet. But then I can also bet that, oh, at some point he's going to throw an 8, or at some point he's going to throw a 5. And, and if those I get those, they pay out more. Mm, you can short people live in front of them and watch and make them watch. Right. And then, you know, if, if you hit a set over 11, I lose all that money. But if you just hit the one that you're going for, I, I think maybe I, I don't I don't win anything else, but I don't lose that money either. Maybe. Maybe I'm wrong. Let's find out if I'm wrong. Lupe, uh, Lupe would know. And I'm going to say that aside was slightly more interesting than my green crayon aside, which I'm still flailing over. Lupe's pretty happy with the money that she's won, and they go outside for a smoke, and she entices Perry into reenacting the intro to Friends uh, so that they can go <laughs> inside a large garden fountain and kiss, which is very very strange. It's like, I'm, you know, I'm wearing a full suit here. All right. I just, you know, I, 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 I was waiting for the casino staff to be like, hey, you, get out of the fountain. I was waiting for Joey and Ross and Rachel to show up and just keep clapping, clapping until they die. Sometime later, E.B. is doing his morning routine alone in his very large house. He seems confused when he finds that there are spots of blood in his sink and he checks his gums to see if they were bleeding. This the scene is kind of weird. Yeah, where'd that blood come from? James, where'd that blood come from? I don't know. Maybe he's 
ill. It's like stomach cancer. I mean, assumably, blood doesn't just fall out of you willy-nilly. Does blood fall out of you willy-nilly? Not usually. Okay. Good to know. Wait. What? <laughs> E.B. is lost in thought as he watches a hummingbird drink from a feeder. He doesn't even notice that Della's is knocking on the door and coming inside. Yeah. His merbles. Boy, I'm a, I'm afraid for his merbles. Not the first time Jonathan Lithgow has played a senile old man. He was also a senile old man in Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. How many senile old men do you have to play before you just, like, realize you are one, you know? Yeah, he he thinks he's actually a lawyer in the 30s, which is, you know, that's that's why the performance is so good. He thinks he's actually losing this murder case and, and that the actress who plays Emily is going to really be hanged. Right, that's his own blood in the sink the director caught it happening and was like shh let it go let it happen perry goes to meet with paul again and tells him that he knows he didn't write the police report on the kidnappers because it's nothing like the other police reports that perry has now read paul is definitely not happy to see him and socks him once real hard in the chest and totally knocking the wind out of perry and he tells him to leave me alone i'm not i'm done with this case and i'm done with you well to be fair he sees this as a straight threat to his child because Ennis right. purposely just did threaten his child. Although, at the same time, Paul Drake, whom in the 1950s show was a bit of a karate master, seeing him punch someone was a nice reference. I don't think it was an actual reference to the 1950s show, but he did punch Perry twice in the stomach. And then Perry says the N-word. Now, Matthew Reese. You know, being a white person, it's just, it must have been difficult to read the script and been like, you, you guys are sure? I say it twice, huh? Oh, boy. Well, it's uh, an, an anachronism of the 1930s that people were probably throwing that word and other ones around pretty often. This isn't even the first racial slur that we've had in the show. We've had quite a plethora of them. The yeah. 1930s. Stay the classy. 30s. Drink a Manhattan, say something racist. <laughs> yeah, uh, just a normal Thursday night. Detective Ennis goes to a Chinese brothel to hit them up for some kickback slash protection money. His envelope of money is a little smaller than normal, and the madam says that's because Mr. Wu Sing, who was a character we're not familiar with, Mr. Wu Sing is not pleased with Ennis's work since a police officer was poking around the Lucky Lagoon last night. Ennis asks for the name of the police officer. He's fairly surprised, but uh, seems to understand the situation quite quickly when she says it was somebody, Mason. Mason something. Perry Mason quickly making a very large enemy out of Detective Ennis as Paul Drake has been talked to by him, and now he's at the Lucky Lagoon. He's asking too many questions. Mr. Wu Sing is pissed, whoever that is. E.B. is very frustrated with Perry and Della and how he can't get a hold of Herman Baggerly. Perry is trying to tell E.B. what he's found out vis-a-vis Paul Drake's investigation and that the profile he's creating of George Gannon does not really fit with the idea of him barging into a room, shooting two much larger men, stepping on another guy's neck, just being a hardened killer. But E.B. can hardly keep up with any of this. In the middle of it, someone calls and pretends they're the Chicago Tribune just to get on the phone with E.B. and tell him he's a bad man. Della brings E.B. a letter from Baggerly. Inside is a small note and a check, and E.B.'s like, whoops, we got fired. Yeah. Oh, shucks. We're not on the case anymore. If 
Perry Mason was an actual cop at this point. He would be still working the case afterwards, and then they would take his gun and his badge, and then he'd work it anyway because because he's too deep. Paul comes home from work visibly disturbed and pours himself a stiff drink. His wife is very glad about the situation with Detective Ennis and used the money that they saved on groceries to buy some state-of-the-art baby powder. I don't know if baby powder had just come out. It's a big thing. She's so excited about it. Paul feels bad for hitting Perry, and Clara is sort of on the side of, who cares about Perry? I don't know that guy. I just know that we have free food, and I'm pregnant, and I'm about to have this baby. So do whatever you can so that we have more food and more us. And that kind of goes against all of Paul's moral judgment. But again, she's just like, yeah, I don't know if we can afford your moral judgment. Yes. Paul tries to tell her that they never should have accepted Ennis's cash in the first place. And that he already had to beat up an innocent person because of that. His wife tells him to not do anything to risk his good job. And that he should just focus on looking out for his family. And I gotta say, all of this does not bode well for Paul's wife and unborn child. Especially since, at least in the 1950s adaptation, Paul is a bachelor at that point. So who knows what's gonna happen with this. Maybe not Oh god. I yeah. didn't even put that together. Are they going to murder this gosh dang another baby? Two babies in this show? Really? How far must we push it? Preparing for a sermon, Birdie berates Alice and tells her to stop being so involved in Emily's case. It's not looking good for the church. Alice genuinely wants to help Emily through this extremely miserable time, and her mom accuses her of just trying to fill time because she's bored. Emily is a new toy that you just got. At the Gentleman's Club, E.B. is meeting with one of his lawyer friends, Lyle, and he's begging him for a small personal loan, which his friend laughs at. Lyle then also warns E.B. that D.A. Barnes is looking into their shady past in an attempt to possibly destroy him and advises him to just have her plead out guilty to just, you know, make this all go away. E.B. is reaching out. He's been fired. He's looking for an olive branch from the world. And the world has returned said olive branch on fire and in his hand. Della goes to the county jail to visit Emily and have her sign a new legal representation agreement. But once she gets there, she notices that the court-appointed matron who is meant to protect Emily's safety is out in the waiting room smoking, which makes Della extremely suspicious. Yeah, it's like her only job is to stand near Emily. So Della then forces her way into the holding cells like there are no consequences for that inside the jail Della finds that Ennis and another detective are torturing Emily in order to extract a forced confession she mentions to the detectives that they are super fucked and I was like I don't I don't think they're gonna be I think this will come out in their favor anyway at a bar Perry and Peter are lamenting their sudden loss of income two of them agree that they have become emotionally invested in the case when Peter starts to read some more human interest stories, Perry lights the newspaper on fire and leaves the bar. Very funny. And also, by the way, still referring to those stupid stories, which if they don't mean something eventually will just be a waste of our time like as an audience. On the way to his car, Perry finds Paul in plain clothes outside waiting for him. Paul asks why he's so invested in a case where the defendant is in such a hopeless position. Perry says, because she's innocent. Paul says that's a stupid answer, but then starts to tell Perry everything he found 
about the real crime scene, including the critical piece of George Gannon's false teeth, which he found at the bottom of the stairwell in the alley behind the building. Paul says that he's given Perry everything he's had at this point, and I'm done with this, and I'm done with you, and if you bring this up, I will deny it. So Paul Drake's moral judgment that his wife told him to throw away, that has been threatened by Detective Innes, supersedes what perhaps is common sense, and he goes to Perry Mason anyway and tells him the truth. Which, I don't know, on the scale of moral imperatives, is Paul Drake here and Sister Alice, whom Birdie, her mother, keeps telling her to distance herself from Emily, a possible murderer, and Sister Alice still wants to help. So, you know, how strong are Paul Drake's morals to be helping as much as possible as compared to Sister Alice's? And Sister Alice, you know, she said that thing earlier in the episode about how she didn't kill the baby either, which is a little suspicious, a little sus. So I don't think Paul Drake had anything to do with the baby, obviously. I think he's just, you know, origin storying to being Perry Mason's right-hand man, and Sister Alice might have had something to do with it. But they're both on the same moral ground right now of trying to be helpful for the sake of it. With this new revolution, Perry and Paul race to the morgue to try to examine George's body before it gets cremated. They sneak into the back of the morgue, and they start clumsily rifling through a bunch of naked dead bodies. Nice. Until they find George Gannon. Perry fits the false teeth into George's mouth, and it's a perfect match. So, yeah, if this guy shot himself at his house, why were half of his false teeth found in an alley behind a murder scene? Solid point. Good point. Also, by the way, didn't we see George Gannon's body in the bed, right? Yes, he was like sat upright in bed with a shotgun wound through the head. Right, his head looked insane. And then they showed it this time, and it it looked kind of like a normal face. What happened? That is part of the reconstruction that a mortician will do before oh my God. someone's You're about funeral. To tell me oh, my God. So that they can have an open casket service. Uh, and this is because you know from six feet under, right? Yes, yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, nice. Meanwhile, Sister Alice is giving a sermon in which they are doing an elaborate stage skit involving a story of a shipwreck. So there's like a boat and a sea set on the stage. Alice tries to do her part as best she can, but she's being disturbed by loud voices she's hearing in her head. As she stares into the spotlight, the voices seem to grow louder and louder until she becomes very faint and collapses into what appears to be an epileptic seizure. So who's losing more of their marbles? Is it Sister Alice or is it EB? Is it something Sister Alice is doing purposely and with malice towards with either Birdie or just her situation? Or is she kind of just, you know, going nuts? As Alice's doctor attempts to revive her, the other church elder leads the congregation to prayer, saying that, oh, Alice has just collapsed because she's become overcome with the Holy Spirit. Okay. That's a good thing. <laughs> yeah. Stop looking at her. Look at me. Alice, after a short while, awakens, and she tells her mother that God has just given her a divine revelation that she will be resurrecting Charlie Dodson. And a couple people hear her say this, and the episode ends with Alice having a vision of herself alone on a boat drifting on an empty sea. Right. It kind of reminded me of the 
scene very prior where Lupe and Perry were in the plane. Like, I was like, oh my God, is this the same show? A little before all of this, Matthew is in Herman's house as well. Herman believes Emily is guilty because she, you know, she said she was. Although Della's point is a good one where she's like, you know, all the men have just been telling her she's guilty. But Herman tries to explain to Matthew, whom asks him, you know, why would I be with a person like this? And Herman says, it's in our blood. We have a weakness for degen women, to which Matt takes huge offense. He's like, okay, mom's not a degen. How dare you? You left us alone. Herman says he's cowardly. He apologizes and then shows him his insane plan for a, a religious intentional community that he's building. Now, do you think this community is in concert with Sister Alice or Birdie? Or is this just like a side project for this dude? Yeah, well, I think that Baggerly has had his whole life changed and turned around by Sister Alice and her church. And so, yeah, he's trying to build them their own little Zion somewhere. Strange. Very strange. And also, it sucks that they're going to just leave Emily out to dry. But I guess, you know... If you're thinking like, wow, not only would she having an affair with me, okay, well, that's pretty bad. Oh, and she murdered our son. Well, that's way worse. And then she was also fine with that crime being pinned on me, which necessarily, you know, those other two things may not be true, but that's probably how it feels to Matthew. How is Herman not more angry that he just got extorted for a million dollars? No, apparently he's got cash to burn. I guess I'm just like... A bunch of his money just got put into a briefcase, and he hasn't talked about it at all. He's just like, I got way more money. I'm going to build a a town for myself. Oh, and God. Me and God are going to live there. And you, if you want to. So I like where the show is going a lot. I'm really into it. I'm not shocked to see that they may be having a second season now in the works, or they're at least considering it, which is why they've changed it to season one and gotten rid of the word miniseries on the website. Or maybe I'm reading too much into that. HBO as a company is a known liar and likes to lie about yep. things. Yeah, so, goddamn liars. Who knows? But, you know, I, I would be quite happy if there were a season two. As would I... The end of this episode where Sister Alice says, I'm going to resurrect the baby is, was actually surprising. It was a surprising line. Uh, Yeah, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that that will not happen. (laughs) No, I don't think so either. But I will say also that it feels like they were writing chapter three and they got to that line and they were like, oh, that's a good line. Okay, how do we make that real now? Or not real, but like... Where do we go from here? How is that part of the outline that we had prior to this? What is Sister Alice's deal? Because EB's yeah, what, like, deal is, is pretty straightforward. About? Yeah, I, I, I won't go into any spoilers or anything, but I love the show Mr. Robot. And at a certain point in the later seasons of that show, like one or two characters become preoccupied with this idea that like there's going to be a time to like, oh, it's okay about all these bad things that happened. We're going to turn back the clock on time to a, a time when this didn't happen. And the other characters are like, what the fuck are you talking about? (laughs) Right. I mean, the biggest mystery in the show at this point, because we found out who was, you know, at the bottom of this scheme in episode one, even. The biggest mystery of this show is, what is Sister Alice doing? I'm very interested. You know, chapter four, like you said, is going to be directed by somebody else next week. Her name is Denise Gamzee Erguvian. God tough oh man i honestly i feel bad about saying or trying to even say her name director of two episodes of the handmaid's tale two episodes of the first and chapter four five and six of perry mason 
So basically a trilogy of said Perry Mason that we are watching right now. Again, it's also written by two different people. The first three episodes were, it feels like, I guess they were like made as trilogies. That's so weird. Yeah, that is interesting. (laughs) Everybody gets three. The next one is written by Steve Hanna and Sarah Kelly Kaplan. Steve Hanna has written for a show called The Terror, which... I don't Never know. heard of it. Don't know what that sounds is. spooky. Sounds it just sounds spooky. And Sarah Kelly Kaplan wrote on Daredevil, and she was oh wait no she didn't even write. She was an assistant to the executive producer. She got a promotion on this show. She's now a full time writer. Look at that. Look what happens when you put in the work. James, what is your idea or thought as to what the episode that is entitled Chapter Four, brilliantly titled Chapter Four? What is your thought? What its better name would be? Yeah, I am looking forward to this chapter four, the case of the horrible hangover. No, that's terrible. Let me take another shot at that. Let me take another shot at that. Okay. The case of the bisected biplane. That's what someone's going to crash the biplane. Yeah. Wow. All right. I just, just, you know, Lemony Snicket, uh, pretty tough job coming up with these alliterative titles. I know, but one day you will be the best. Before we go, I'd like to thank our patrons. $1 a month, two extra podcasts. Branko, Hardboiled Greg, Nicole, James Watch My Dong. I'm watching this week, but not next week. I need that week off. I understand that. I hope he does too. Cliff Wilding, Hello underscore Yo, James Christopher, Atheism Unstoppable, Chris Wood, Brent Genn, Day 11 Westworld, Carol Andreas, Lee, Craig, Bacherman, John Jers, and Major Woody. Thank you to all of them, and thank you to all of you for listening to this show Oh, it's so nice of you to listen to the show. Yeah, follow us on Twitter. He's at Westworld Ryan. I'm at James Watches Men. That's true. Not related to the show Watchmen. This is private thing, which really I shouldn't have made my Twitter handle. Yeah, but you're too far deep now. So, and that's the name of your future autobiography. James Watched Men. Too far deep. Which doesn't, that's a bad name. So, yeah, follow us on social media or join us on Patreon if you want bonus content. Or the number one thing you could do to support the show, pass it around by word of mouth. Yeah, say words about it. Make people listen to us. Threaten them with violence. And then join us here for Perry Mason Chapter 4 next week. And if you're a patron, catch us in your patrons-only feed later on as well. I'm James. And I'm Ryan. And I realize we never actually said our names at the beginning. So I hope you just, like, knew. Right. Well, don't join in the middle of, of the you know the third episode of Perry Mason anyway, and then get upset when you don't know our names, all right? Don't yell at them. How dare you? <laughs> like two parents talking about their children. Don't yell. How dare you? We're the HBO boys. Bye. HBO. Bye. Boys. Bye, boys.